invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is immediately following our Lord's baptism. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down. Worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Amen? Let us pray together. Great and mighty God, we do worship you and praise you this evening. I ask your blessing upon what we do. I do not know the myriad distractions or burdens that might fill the minds and hearts of your people. You know. I pray that you would gather them to yourself. Gather me. You know. You and I know. The things in my mind, the long weekend and the like, the frailty of human flesh. We ask that you would be with us now in the reading, preaching, hearing of your word. To our good and your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is a famous scene alluded to by Mark, told in detail by Matthew and Luke, the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness. It has an immediate surface lesson right on the top. Our Lord, filled with the knowledge of the scriptures is equipped when tempted by Satan to refute those temptations. He is ready uh, with a ready word, not once, twice, but three times. That is an excellent and sound lesson that is taught across the scriptures. You can think particularly of Psalm 119, how will a young man guide his way, keep his way, treasuring the Lord's word as I treasured in my heart to restrain my feet from evil. It's it's all through the scriptures. To, to have those scriptures in you is a ready, useful, powerful tool in resisting temptation. Well and good. I think there might be more going on here than that very useful lesson. And the hint that there's more going on here than that is in recognizing two patterns in this passage. One is very simple. One is seeming a little complex. The simple one is this. Not only does our Lord uh, quote scripture to the devil three times, they're all from the book of Deuteronomy. 
which seems kind of surprising. <laughs> uh, maybe that was his morning devotion. He was reading Deuteronomy in his quiet time. But it seems, with all the Old Testament uh, before him, behind him, in him, that they all come from Deuteronomy is, if nothing else, striking. That's the simple thing that makes you think there might be more here. The complex one is to see something, you'll bear with me, I hope, to see something that is developing in the opening chapters of Matthew of the relationship of Jesus and God's people. Uh, a, 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 a pattern that is being developed across those opening chapters, which you can remember that pattern by remembering four words. Egypt, water, wilderness, and mountain. Egypt, water, wilderness, and mountain. This is what I mean. Uh, the defining redemptive event of the Old Testament is the exodus, the coming out of Egypt, Israel being carried out of Egypt by God. That's the defining redemptive event of the Old Testament. Uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, and he said, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he might serve me the defining redemptive event of the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 2, after our Lord is born, there is an attempt by Herod to murder him, and an angel of the Lord tells Joseph not simply to get Jesus out of Herod's territory, but to take him to Egypt. And he does. And then when Herod is dead, he comes back. And when he comes back out of Egypt, Matthew applies the words of Hosea 11.1. 1. You see this in Matthew 2.15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Plainly, the words of Hosea are looking back to the Exodus event in the Old Testament. But Matthew applies that prophecy that looked back to the Exodus of the collective son, Israel. He applies those words to that which is being done by the singular son, Jesus. Because the Old Testament exodus is a foreshadowing of a greater exodus that will be accomplished in Christ. So Egypt, water, wilderness, mountain. What is the water? Well, when you leave Egypt on the exodus, where do you go? Your route is through the sea, through the Red Sea. Uh, it's through waters of judgment and division. It wasn't just Israel that went into the Red Sea. It was Israel and Egypt that went into the Red Sea. Israel came out and Egypt did not. Those were waters of judgment and division between those who were gods and those who were not. After Jesus, in chapter 2, after the narrative of his birth, the narrative of his life then leaps forward to his beginning of his ministry in chapter 3, or right before the beginning of his ministry when he's an adult, when he, along with all of Israel, goes to the water, not the Red Sea, they go to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing. And those waters and that baptism are waters of judgment and division. And you can hear it from the lips of John the Baptist, because while everyone is coming to him, all Jerusalem, Judea, 
all the district around the Jordan, they're all coming to John, but John is not receiving them all the same. As he says in verses 7 and following of chapter 3, uh, when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's, you know, like children of the serpent. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And he speaks about the axe that is laid at the root of the tree. And he speaks of the threshing floor, and that the 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 the, the uh, the one coming after him has his winnowing fork in his hand and is ready to clear the floor to separate the wheat and the chaff, which will be burned up. Which, interestingly enough, when Israel crossed the Red Sea, Moses led them in a song of victory. And in that song, he spoke of what happened to their enemies, that they were burned up like chaff. Burned up like chaff. So these are waters of division. Everyone goes in. But there's only one that when he comes out, does he hear a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Egypt, water, when you come out of the Red Sea, where are you? You're in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. So, we're going to be going back and forth a little bit to Exodus, but you, just to remind you, when they come out of the water, across the sea, they sing their song. Moses leads them in song. Miriam leads the women in song. Exodus 15, 22, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness. And you and I know that they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And what do we read here after the baptism, after he comes up out of the water, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what does it say in verse 2? And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. The singular son is in the wilderness for 40 days. And just to complete our pattern, though it takes us a little past our text, where are they going in the wilderness? They're going to Mount Sinai where God is going to give them the law and establish them as a kingdom. And after Jesus spends his time in the wilderness and he begins to gather his disciples, what do we read in chapter 5, verse 1? When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It strikes me that there's this is more than a coincidence. <laughs> this much parallelism between the narrative of what happens with Israel and what happens with Jesus. And so as we consider Christ in the wilderness, we're actually going to do that by cons actually spending a little more time leading up to that by considering Israel in the wilderness. That's the parallel I'll be focusing on this evening. So we'll take it in those two parts, Israel in the wilderness and Christ in the wilderness. So think about Israel. Why are they in 
the wilderness. And you'd say, well, because that's what's on the other side of the Red Sea, which makes a certain amount of logical sense, I suppose. But, um, you know, God just parted the Red Sea. He could have transported them anywhere he wanted. There's a purpose. He's He's not stumbling along, making the plan up as he goes. There's a purpose for them being in the wilderness, likely more than one. But certainly chief among the purposes for Israel to be in the wilderness is preparation. Preparation. I want you to think about that preparation in two ways. Preparation by what and preparation for what. What are they, or by what means are they going to be prepared in the wilderness? If if you think about Israel as God's son, as he said to Pharaoh, he is my son, Israel is my son, then we could say that Egypt was the womb and the wilderness is the classroom. Egypt is the womb where that son, in a sense, was formed. And the wilderness is the classroom. And it is in this classroom that they will be prepared. And in that classroom, in some sense, not unlike our own classrooms, they will be prepared by tests. By tests. So if you desire, you can go to Exodus if it's helpful to you, but I can summarize uh, the, the flow of things. Exodus 14 is the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus 15, at least the first 20 or so verses, are Moses leading them the song of victory, and then Miriam leading them in song. And then uh, at the, toward the end of Exodus 15, they are led into the wilderness. They come to a place where the water is bitter, so bitter they can't drink it. They do what they will be doing henceforth. They grumble against God. God makes provision through Moses to turn the water sweet, Then in Exodus 15, 25, and 26, they are given what I would call a charter for their time in the wilderness. God says to them this, There he made for them a statute and a regulation. There he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. If you will give earnest heed, if you will listen and you will obey, then the judgments that fell upon Egypt will not fall upon you. That's that's the charge. And And he calls this, it says, he tested them. That's at the end of chapter 15. Chapter 16, we begin our journey, and they're hungry, and they grumble. And they get their first particular of this testing. They're gonna be tested with bread. We read in chapter 16, God says to them, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. 
On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So the test is fairly simple. Five days go out, get enough for the day. On the sixth day, go out and get enough for two days. On the seventh day, don't go out. That's the test. They got an F minus. <laughs> they, they go out immediately and they start gathering as much as they possibly can. You think they're shopping at Costco. They're all they can get. And they try to keep it overnight and it breeds worms and it's foul and it's disgusting. And then on the seventh day, when they're not supposed to go out, they go out looking for bread. They, they completely fumble the test. They don't listen. They don't heed. They don't do as they're told. Chapter 17, they go on. They're in the wilderness. There's no water. Verse 2 of chapter 17, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. We're going to go from bad to worse here. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? <laughs> so we're failing all our tests, and now we're going to turn around and test the Lord. This is the place where Moses, the first place that Moses is instructed to take his, his staff. He's instructed to strike a rock and out of the water, I mean, out of the rock comes water. And then they name that place Masa, which is a derivation of the Hebrew word for test, <laughs> because there they tested the Lord. Now, bear in mind, we haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai. We haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai. They eventually do get to Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments uh, from God through Moses. They receive uh, the Book of the Covenant, chapters 21, 2, 3, 4. That is the law that is expanded from the Ten Commandments. They have a covenant meal with God. They declare all that you say we will do. They make covenant with God. Then Moses goes back up the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. This time they have been provided for every day. Every day they've been provided for. They have heard the voice of God. They see the fire on the mountain. They're supposed to just wait. And before the 40 days are over, they're done. They pressure Aaron, Aaron caves. They make a golden calf and they bow, bow down and idolatry. In the parking lot of Mount Sinai, they haven't left the mountain yet. And they're making an idol and bowing down. It is not a happy scene in Moses' life. They're there, and they're, you know the story of the Ten Commandments is given again, etc. Eventually, they go on into the wilderness, failing test after test after test. Eventually, they get to the promised land, the edge of the promised land. They say, let us spy it out first. They send in their spies for 40 days. The spies come back. 10 out of 12 have a bad report. And they say, we won't go in. We won't go in. The, the whole purpose of this, 
This journey is to go into the land. We won't go in. And at that point, in Numbers 14, the Lord says, okay, you're right. You won't go in. Forty days you spied out the land. Forty years you'll be in the wilderness. You will be in the wilderness till every adult male of this generation dies. Except for two, two good spies. Everyone dies. The son that was in Egypt, that was brought out of Egypt, is going to die in the wilderness. As those 40 years draw to a conclusion, Moses gathers on the edge of the land, on the plains of Moab, with, in a sense, a second son. It's the generation that succeeds that first generation. They're gathered together on the plains of Moab outside the land. Forty years later, Moses gathers them together, and he says, let me tell you how we got here. And he begins to recount to them the history of the previous generation, their failures, their failures with the manna, their failures with the, uh, at Masa, the various ways it fa failed. He gives them again the Ten Commandments that were given to the first generation in Mount Sinai, and then he expands upon those Ten Commandments. He unfolds it at great length. All that stuff that he says to that second generation is put together in a book, and that book is called Deuteronomy. The second Deutero law, numbers, Deuteronomy. The book that Jesus is quoting in the wilderness. That is, the son is quoting in the wilderness. They failed the tests. That's what they were being prepared for. By, what were they being prepared for? Well, you, you see that back at Mount Sinai. When he gathers them together at Mount Sinai, he says to them, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, you've seen how I bore you out. Verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests for whom? If you're going to be a priest, a priest mediates. <laughs> a priest is in between, kind of like a preacher. I mean, I'm a preacher at home alone because that's my job. But if there's nobody to preach to, you're not really a preacher, are you? And if who are you mediating for? Who are, these, who are they going to be priests for? The whole world. The whole world. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be the priests of God for everyone else. If you fail in your preparation, you will fail in your assignment. 
And so it is, we see precious little in history of Israel acting as a kingdom of priests for the nations. Where we see it is in prophecy. There's a lot of talk about the nations being gathered in uh, you know, from all over and, and streaming to Zion and coming into Israel, particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah and places. There's a lot of prophecy of those things, but there's very little history because they didn't do it, by and large. I mean, there's a Gentile here and a Gentile there, but not a sense of the nations fulfilling, the, the nation fulfilling this ministry. That was their purpose. Just as Adam was to fill the earth with humanity, and just as the promise to Abraham was that through him would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, this nation was supposed to be a nation of priests for all the earth. But they failed. Having failed all their tests. Now, with that in your mind, we look at Christ in the wilderness, the true son, the singular son, the only begotten son. He's not just another. He's not just another man. He's not just another generation. He is the beloved and only begotten son. And like Israel, he's tested in the wilderness. Like Adam, he is tempted directly by Satan. Look at his temptation. He's tempted with bread. This is similar and yet very different from the temptation that faced the nation. It's different in that their test was remarkably mild. Don't be a pig. Don't hoard. Trust me for 24 hours. The, the, the manna truck will be coming again. Our Lord is 40 days hungry. 40 days hungry. So it's different, but it's very similar in a way, not only with the theme of bread, but in the heart of the matter. There's no sin in bread. There's no sin in miracles. I mean, he's being tempted. I mean, what's, what's the thing that he's being tempted with? What he's being tempted with is simply this. Will you trust me, the Father? Will you take me at my word? Will you wait? Will you wait on me? He's not on a stroll in the wilderness. He was led or compelled into the wilderness at his Father's will by the Holy Spirit. He is being here. He's here for a purpose, and that purpose is to wait on his Father. Will you wait on me? That's what the temptation is. To adapt the language of the charter verse in Exodus 15, will you give earnest heed? To my voice. Oh, you be like Saul, King Saul, who could not wait any longer for the prophet and went ahead and did his own sacrifice. I just can't wait any longer. Our Lord will wait. He will wait on the Lord. He will wait on his word. 
second temptation. At Massa, at Massa, Israel tested God. They quarreled with Moses and they tested God. They, they put God to the test and the test they were putting him to was, do you really care? Are you really going to provide for us? I mean, I know you already did, and I know you already did, and I know you already did, but are you really? Do you really care about us? They're putting him to the test. And Satan, by twisting Psalm 91, is inviting Jesus to do exactly the same thing. Do you really think he cares? Do you really think he does? The, the opposite side of testing God, uh, the, the opposite, opposite expression is to doubt God. He's inviting Jesus to doubt him. Why do you test things? Why do we have uh, uh, departments of standards and tests that make sure a gallon container holds a gallon or that a certain grade steel is a certain grade steel or a certain character quality of gold is, a, is that in fact what it says? Why do we test? Because we don't trust. Because <laughs> you're lying. You're trying to rip me off. You're trying to sell me uh, 18 karat gold and you're telling me it's 24 karat gold. You're trying to sell me a gallon of something, but it's really just 0.85 gallons. So we have somebody test or weigh or measure. Jesus is being invited to put his father to the test because maybe he's not that trustworthy. Oh, and it's a very clever and shrewd. It's, it seems almost the, the horns of an insoluble dilemma. If you test him, you're saying, I don't believe him. And if you don't take this test and throw yourself off, well, you must be saying you don't believe him. Surely he'll catch you. Oh, Satan is shrewd. The Lord is shrewder. He just answers him with the word of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's that simple. Quoting... Moses' reflection upon the attitude of those at Masa. It's not incidental. Third temptation. Gain the whole world. People like to argue whether or not Satan had the whole world to offer. He certainly did, in a sense. Adam had dominion over the whole earth, and then Adam made himself a slave of Satan. That is, Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. So in that sense that he is the prince of the power of the air, he is a, a, a power and authority that rules over the domain of darkness, and that all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins, certainly in that sense, even if you think it's stolen property, it is in his grasp in a sense. And the temptation that is made to our Lord is you can have it. You can have it. And you can have it on easy terms, much easier terms than your father had appointed. The father has, has sent the son to receive the whole earth. But the, the path that he has marked out for his son is the path of atonement, the path of suffering and death. And Satan says, look, I can set all that aside. I'll give it to you for a song, just a little genuflection, a little worship. 
a little idolatry. A little idolatry. Do you notice what's missing in this temptation that was in the other two? Why, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. He doesn't, he doesn't preface this one with, if you're the son of God. Why? Because if he bows down in idolatry, he is not the son of God. It is to disown the relationship. When Israel, that's the, the thing that is so startling about the golden calf. They have just made a covenant with God. They have just established themselves my covenant with God. What is the gist, the sum, the substance, the pith of the covenant promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. When they are bowing down to an idol, what are they saying? You are not my people. We are not your people. They are disowning the relationship. They are ceasing to be the son in the way that an adulterous man ceases to be a husband. He may still have the contract. But in substance, his adultery denies his relation. And idolatry denies the relationship with God. And so it would make zero sense to say, well, if you're the son of God, then act like you're not. So it's as if the mask is falling off. And our, our Lord is being invited to abandon his own identity in his relationship to the Father. These tests plainly echo the failures of Israel, the collective Son. They failed in their preparation for ministry, and therefore they failed to execute their ministry. But Christ succeeds. He is faithful. He has already received the word of approbation. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. He has already received that blessing. And now as he undergoes these deeper, more fundamental trials and tests, he stands. He passes the tests that are a preparation for his ministry. What was the ministry of Israel? You're going to be a kingdom of priests. To whom? To the whole world. And now here is the singular son. And he has passed these tests. And then what happens? It, the rest of the chapter, he he, he moves to Capernaum, he, tra he, he, he relocates to Capernaum, and he begins his ministry. Where does he begin his ministry? It says right there, verse 15, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, or the ethnos, the nations. He begins, he specifically moves to a town that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, but fulfills specifically the prophecy that he's going to begin his ministry in a place of the nations, and he's going to prosecute that ministry all the way to the cross, into the grave, up from the grave, and right as he's about to ascend, he will commission his church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go and make disciples 
He's commissioning the church as a kingdom of priests. The singular son has passed the test, been prepared for the ministry, has entered into the ministry, not just his singular ministry, but the ministry that includes the establishment of his kingdom, a kingdom of priests. And so it is in 1 Peter that Peter takes that language of Exodus 19, a, a royal household, a kingdom of priests, and he applies it directly to the church. Applies it directly to the church. Our Lord does all that Israel failed to do. I'll take you back to that charter. If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord your God, am your healer. If you do what's right in your own eyes. That was a charter. If you are perfectly righteous, I will give you life. I gave Egypt if you will do what is right, perfectly right, everything that is right, then I will give you life. The collective son failed. The singular son comes to the Jordan River where everyone else in the nation is confessing their sins, confessing their failure to do what is right, to heed the Lord and obey in all things. He has nothing to say. He has no sins, but he joins with them. He stands with them. He goes into the water like they go into the water, and then he comes out of the water, and the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Words spoken to him, but they are for his nation, his people, his kingdom of priests. He is securing that blessing for us. He is standing where we would fall. He succeeds in the wilderness where the nation fails. And he earns and merits and takes the approbation of his father for us. We are his people. In him we receive his blessing. So what does that mean? kingdom of priests. What are we to do? Well, the simplest of all things that we're to do, we're to obey. We're to do what's right and not what's wrong. If God says do it, do it. If God says don't, don't. If God says love, love. If God says serve, serve. Simple obedience. As we aspire to a deeper obedience, did, did our Lord carry around a checklist of rights and wrongs and consult it frequently? Can I do this? Oh, no, I'm not sure about this. Let me think about it. No. He is so consumed with righteousness, he is instinctually right. He always does what is pleasing to the Father, he says. He doesn't ponder, he doesn't weigh, he doesn't measure, because he is perfectly righteous. He does what is right, wholly, always, completely, from the core out. 
That is the perfection that we aspire to. We take baby steps toward it in doing what is right. That is the perfection that we will eventually have completely with Him in glory. No weighing, no considering, is it, should I, maybe, I don't know, how close can I get? None of that. You just do what's right because you love what's right because you love God. But we're a kingdom of priests. We proclaim a message. What does that mean? You can operate with two general assumptions about all people and all religions. Two general assumptions. The general assumptions that animate all people and all religions do good, get a reward. Be right, be blessed. What, you, you can call it what you want. Call it heaven, call it the happy hunting ground, call it Valhalla, Elysian fields, paradise, whatever it is. There is, it, just go across, you know, even if you think, uh, you, you know, some Eastern religion, you're going to enter into total consciousness, whatever it is. You, the idea is that if uh, the more you do right, the better it's going to be. It's going to, it's going to, there's going to be a reward for righteousness. Righteousness gets rewarded. That's the one thing that animates all religions, true and false. And the other thing that animates people is how right is right. A little hang up in the back of the head. I mean, I'm not pretty good. I'm not a murderer. I mean, I didn't murder that many people. Okay. How good is good? There's anxiety and guilt or fear or shame or something that, okay, I know that that, uh, do this and live, do good and, and be blessed. I know that that's a principle. I have that idea, and yet I'm not so sure that I'm, I'm, I'm that good. How good is good? Well, here's what you proclaim. You proclaim you're absolutely right. Righteousness merits that. And then you proclaim that righteousness must be right. Not 98, not 99%, not 99.9%. It must be 100%. Perfect perfection to merit righteousness. And then you proclaim the good news. That is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do for us. We are his kingdom of priests because we have laid hold of the righteousness that he has provided to us. And we are laying hold of that righteousness as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we are proclaiming that righteousness in the wilderness. Here is the rock that has water in it. Come and drink. The Lord does care. The Lord has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. Lay hold of Christ and live. Live in him. Amen? Let us pray together. Great and mighty God, we do worship you and praise you this day. Thankful for the good news of the gospel. That our Savior has carried us through. Our Savior has commissioned us to go. Bless us in these things, we ask in Jesus' name.